recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christianity on Saturdays. Uh, we we are starting a little late tonight because Brian and I were, were were distracted with the conversation about chronology and and mostly about um, false conspiracy theories and all of the excrement, as I termed it that the enemies of white Western civilization and the enemies of Christ love to spread throughout the entire world of information in order to soil the entire world and in order to distract practically everybody with one thing or another, which is not worth addressing. And in that manner, that they forestall they forestall the elucidation of truth. They cloud all the issues, and they attempt to perpetuate their own um, cultural dominance. Thank, well, well, thank you for listening tonight, and praise Yahweh. It is Saturday, January 19th, 2013, if I have that right. Tonight we are presenting material which I had written for Clifton's Watchman's Teaching Letters in response to articles found in the Free American News magazine that this is more Jewish excrement, but, but this has to be addressed because it affects an awful lot of Christians. There's an awful lot of identity Christians who are swallowing this excrement, who smell just like it. This is in response to articles found in the Free American News magazine, which Clayton Douglas had taken credit for, but which I much later discovered that he did not actually write himself. These articles were written to attack and discredit the apostle Paul of Tarsus. Douglas's original articles were published in the December 2003 and January 2004 issues of his magazine. The material in reply to Douglas, this material which we are presenting, had originally appeared in Clifton Emmeheiser's Watchman Teaching Letters, numbers 95 and 96, which were dated from March and April of 2006. This material also appears on Christagenia.org in a lengthy article entitled, William Fink versus DePaul Bashers. This is now the ninth program in a series. I expected to run at least half a dozen more, perhaps longer than that, and it should not need further introduction. Hello, Brian. Hello, thank you for having me here. Reference 14. Clay Douglas states, the Edomite Jewish Pharisees were the dominant force controlling the economy and religious thought of the area. To identify with these leaders and to gather the information he needed, he joined their ranks, he meaning Paul, I assume. As a Roman citizen and soldier, he held international power over people. There's an, uh, that's just an appeal to emotion there, referring to Paul as an internationalist, as though he's some Jew banker. And if I'm not mistaken, in reference 13 or 12, Douglas stated that the Romans were the dominant force controlling the economy in the area. So is he just contradicting himself from paragraph to paragraph? Well, well absolutely, and we've seen that throughout this entire presentation. They set themselves up as authorities. They sound like they have a command of the issues, that they state fact after fact, which, which are all wrong, which are all based on false premises. And because they sound authoritative, people mistake that for authority, and, and they believe this stuff. 
well, as if this man were learned and he doesn't really know a damn thing about ancient Rome or, or the first century or Christianity or Christ, and some Jew probably wrote this paper for him. But it sounds good, so people swallow it because it, because it, it, it gives them um, some sort of comfort in one agenda or another. And in this case, it's Paul bashing, and of course, Paul... A lot of Christian patriots don't understand how badly Paul of Tarsus is writing is mistranslated, and they blame him for the universalism of churchianity, when in fact Paul had nothing at all to do with the universalism of churchianity. And I'm sure if you ask Clay Douglas what a tetrarch is, or what the word tetrarch means, he'd probably tell you it's where you get the maximum points in Tetris. Well, maybe it, uh, it's he, he. I'm sure he doesn't know what he's talking about. It, it's easily demonstrated. I had a couple of programs with him, and the man didn't even know what to talk to me about. And that was several years ago. And, and that's when I discovered that he actually didn't write this. Uh, it, it wasn't until uh, I replied to Douglas's calls in 2005 and 2006, and I didn't find find out that Douglas himself didn't write this until 2009 or 2010, right? Right. And to continue then, or? Well, well, yes. As a Roman citizen and soldier, he held international power over the people. And as a Pharisee, he held local power over the Palestinians. Uh, again, there really, there really is no Palestinian people. They were Judeans. But that, I digress. It just shows that whoever wrote this is viciously ignorant. With this blending of authority, the Pharisees used Saul to their advantage. Saul was encouraged to move swiftly against Esu Emmanuel and his followers who taught truth to the people, compared to the author of this article who was teaching lies to the people. He traveled to various cities to hunt them down and to arrest or to kill them. Paul, Saul, tortured and murdered thousands of innocents, many of them mere children. Now, stating that Saul moved against Emmanuel himself, if I'm not mistaken, Paul probably would have been either a toddler, an infant, or maybe not even born at, at the time Jesus died. Am I correct? Uh, I'm not sure oh, when was Paul, Paul was Paul was described as a young man at the stoning of Stephen. Well, which means that Paul, being described as a young man, really didn't have, wasn't in a position to have um, much authority. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's a, um, a, a young soldier or a young man in Judea really couldn't have any initiative on his own. He had to follow the lead of his elders. But, but at the stoning of Stephen, it, it was shortly after the first Pentecost, within the first year after the first Pentecost. I don't think that the book of Acts dates it, yet, you know, gives us the information we need to date it precisely, but Paul would have been um, described as a young man. He was probably between 20 and 30, and it's difficult to tell exactly how old he was. I don't think there's a record telling exactly how old he was, but, but I mean, the book of Acts from after that point spans nearly 30 years. Right, but he's not in command of a Roman legion or anything. He he doesn't have hundreds or thousands of soldiers to roam about Judea massacring people. No, he was described as a young man, as a neophyte, which means that he was probably, in, in the later accounts, it's clear that he was of age, meaning he was at least 20 years old, but, but he wasn't an elder. He didn't have a lot of authority. 
and, and he sure as hell wasn't a Roman soldier anyway. And and that's easily easily um, shown to be a fact uh, that shown to be a statement which cannot be substantiated. It can't right. be substantiated. Therefore, it's not a fact. A fact requires evidence to support it. There's absolutely no evidence that Paul was a Roman soldier anywhere. Well, they'll, they'll say there's no evidence that he wasn't a Roman soldier, and then they try and put the onus on us to disprove their theory. But that's not how, you know, you know the, the um, Socratic method, rational thought, logic, reasoning. If I want to advance a theory, I need evidence supporting my theory. I can't use the absence of evidence against my theory to, you know, support my theory. Right. Now, now, there is no doubt that the Pharisees had a great deal of influence. The Pharisees themselves were a political party, even dominating the religious and political spheres in Judea, and, and that they didn't really, that, that their um, realm didn't exceed far beyond the borders of Judea, except where there were large um, populations of Judeans in the region such as in, in Damascus and, and in other towns in Syria. But they did not have control of Judea. And, and certainly the Pharisees did not control the economy. The Romans controlled the economy. And, and the proof of that is replete in the New Testament. Throughout the New Testament, the Pharisees despised. They despised the publicans who were the Roman-appointed tax collectors. We also see that the Sadducees, the Sadducees held doctrines which differed greatly from the Pharisees, and they also had a strong political voice, and, and that's proven in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 23. So the Pharisees weren't, weren't the, the ultimate authority in Judea when there were other, that they were a mere political party, and there were other political parties who, who also filled offices of authority from, from you know, people from among their membership held offices of authority. So, so the Pharisees aren't, yeah, you know, Douglas is imagining the, the Pharisees to be de facto rulers in Judea, and that's certainly not true. And, and that's by no means the, the picture that the New Testament or Josephus paint for us of, of first century Judea. The, the Sadducees, at least two Sadducees became high priests and, and were actually the de facto rulers of the, the, the Judean people of Judea. Now, that's pretty sick. A Sadducee who believes in no resurrection and no afterlife becoming a high priest in, in any religion. Well, well it, it, it actually, you know, the Sadducees, it's proven that the Sadducees were, were high priests um, in, at the time of the crucifixion in Acts chapter 5, verse 17. Right. The, the high priest that, that um, Ananus and, and Caiaphas the high priests at the time of Christ, they were Sadducees. They weren't Pharisees. And for all intents and purposes, Sadducees are basically atheists, aren't they? Well, well, all the Sadducees don't believe in the spiritual world. They don't believe in angels. And, and, and well, God is just lip service to them, but they really don't believe in spirits whatsoever. So, so they're materialists. It comes down to it, yes, they're absolutely materialists. They were actually the party of the rich. I mean, Josephus describes the Sadducees as the, the, the priesthood uh, of the wealthy and, and states that they were far fewer in number than the, Sadduc than the Pharisees, but because they had the money behind them, that they had a lot more influence than their numbers. But even, even with that, 
Josephus states that the Sadducees could get very little done politically without the approval of the Pharisees simply because the Pharisees were much more numerable. Now, now the, um, and, and we see that in the, the fabric of the resurrection and, and crucifixion accounts, that the Pharisees had a lot of influence, but the Sadducees were the high priests at the time. And the Pharisees, you know, a political party, and, and we see this in our own government today, right? Uh, I mean, the Republicans could have a majority, but if the president isn't a Republican, and the vice president isn't a Republican, that then, then the Republicans really can't get much done, right? And, and that's just, uh, I'm not promoting Republicans or Democrats, believe me, I'm just trying to make an illustration. We see that in, in our own political system today, where, where uh, minor, a minority party can fill certain offices and, and, and stifle the agenda of a majority party. I mean, it happens all the time. Now, now in Josephus, we see a Sadducee in, in, in um, power at the time of Christ, and, 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 we see, and we see that in Acts chapter 5, verse 17, and, and we see it again in Josephus later on in, in the early 7th decade of the 1st century, about 63 AD, the Sadducees had the high priesthood once again. They're, they're only the places where Josephus explicitly mentioned Sadducees as high priests, the, the Sadducees as high priests aren't necessarily limited to those times. There may have been more periods where Sadducees were high priests that we, we you know, it's not explicitly mentioned. So, so it just shows that the Pharisees didn't, they were only one party, as described by Josephus. They didn't have total control of Judean politics. And, and in truth, the Romans really had control of Judean politics because the high priests, at this time, they were appointed by the Romans. Hello? Okay, I guess we're back. That was predictable. Talk to drop the Skype call once again. Okay, where was I? The, the, um, well, well, the Pharisees clearly were not the de facto rulers of Judea because the Romans were appointing the high priests, and we see on these, on at least these two occasions, um, about 30, 31, 32 AD, during the time of the ministry of Christ and, and his crucifixion, Sadducees had the high priesthood. One from among their number was appointed high priest, and that was true again, explicitly mentioned by Josephus, and there may have been other occasions, and, and, and that was circa 63 AD, around the time of the death of, of the brother of Christ or, or the apostle known as James. James the Lesser, actually, who, who was the author of the famous epistle in the New Testament and who was the brother of, of Yahshua Christ and of the Apostle Jude.
The family of Herod being Edomites, as Josephus' histories attest in, in several places, substantiates why the Edomites of the Pharisees were favored and appointed to the priesthood and, and to high offices most often. Yet it's already been demonstrated in, in, this, in these, this series of presentations that not all of the Pharisees were Edomites, that many of the Pharisees were actually Israelites, had to be true from the Gospel accounts and from the circumstances of many Pharisees, such as Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. And, and if we want to... Um, if we want to share the understanding which we have that the Edomites, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 9, were hated by God, what we, we have to understand as Christians that Christ would not have been preaching the gospel to Edomites as he was often found preaching the gospel to the Pharisees. Now, are you referring to Herod Archelaus or the so-called Herod the Great? Well, well the family of Herod, that, that's what I said, and, and oh. that, that includes them both, right? Mm-hmm. Our current political situation parallels, um, parallels amazingly, to an astonishing degree, degree the, the political situation in Judea at the time of Christ. Where today we see in in our own political parties that while not all Republicans are Jews, the Jews are certainly overrepresented at the top of the Republican Party political hierarchy. And and especially the last few few administrations, and and I'm referring to the Bush administrations, where where we see that Jewish neocons are, are practically ruling the party and, and holding all of the um, top advisory and administrative positions in the White House when the Republicans are in power. And, and we, we can imagine, and the records would attest, that the situation was very similar in first century Judea with the Pharisees and with the Sadducees. And it's the same with the Democratic Party where we see Jews at the top of the hierarchy of the Democratic Party are, are, are astonishingly overrepresented. Well, when I wrote this paper, I stated that Jews made up 20% of the Supreme Court. Now, when the number's higher than that. Oh, yeah, it's at least 33% if you count the ones that are open. And if you count Sotomayor, who's most likely a crypto, it's about 45%. Oh, Four out of nine. a crypto Jew, yes. And and we see well, when I wrote this that this response in in um in 2005, I stated that there were at least 16 United States senators of Jewish descent. That yeah, they claim have only three percent of the party of, of the population. They claim that I believe the number's higher, but but regardless, even if the even if the number's 15 percent of the population or 20 percent of the population, they're still overrepresented in high offices and, and administrative positions in this country. They're still severely overrepresented. So, so Douglas's misconstrued version of history would prevent one from noticing these parallels. 
and these repetitious patterns. The Edomite Jews took over Roman Judea the same discreet way they did 19th century England or 20th century America. And it was a political takeover then, and, and it's a, um, it was a political takeover today in, in this nation. If Paul of Tarsus were a Roman soldier, he would have been attached to a Roman legion, and he would have taken his orders from a Roman tribune or from a Roman centurion. He certainly would not have needed or sought orders from a high priest at Jerusalem. We see an example at Acts chapter 9, verse 2. To do anything which a Roman soldier may have lawfully done. It would have even been considered treasonous for a Roman soldier to have taken orders from a non-Roman foreign authority. That's treason to the Romans. That, that's like a, um, a, a, a United States soldier. Well, well this happens in, in United Nations situations, but, but it, it, it's only um, due to the advent of globalism and the submission of the United States to the United Nations, right? But, but it would be considered treasonous before the 1950s for a United States soldier to take orders and to seek orders from a foreign officer. Uh, I mean, how often would that happen? And, and it wouldn't happen in Judea under, the, under imperial Rome. Paul wouldn't be a Roman soldier taking orders from, a subject, from the high priest of a subject nation. That, that's absurd to even, to even insinuate. And, and, and it clearly uh, demonstrates that the, whoever wrote this had no clue of um, the, the ancient Roman world, right? No clue whatsoever about how things function in the ancient Roman world. Rome was a very strictly disciplined society with strict laws governing the behavior of citizens and soldiers alike. By no means could a Roman soldier take upon himself to persecute the people of a Roman province. The authority would have had to come from elsewhere within the Roman military hierarchy. Well, if a Roman legionnaire just decided I'm going to get four or five of my colleagues together and we don't like these people, we're going to go massacre that village over there, they'd probably be scourged and crucified or beaten to death for it. One day they'd be executed. Well, well the books are replete with episodes of um, Roman soldiers and, and disobedience and punishment. And a Roman soldier, under the command of a tribune or a centurion, would by no means have the ability to go seek orders from a foreign from a foreign political authority. Right, so if the centurion asks, why did you do that, and, and someone says, well, the high priest told me I could. Right, right. The whole thing, the whole scenario set up by, by the, the writer of this article is absurd. It, it's absurd. It shows, it, it shows the, um, the total disregard for history of, of Paul Bashers in general. I mean, we saw it in Graeber, and now we see it in Douglas. It's a pattern. Often appearing in the New Testament is the phrase, captain of the temple. It's in Acts chapter 4, verse 1. It's in Acts chapter 5, verse 24. Or also the phrase, the captains with the officers, referring to the, the, the Judean government, the local government. 
and and we see those phrases that that phrase in John chapter eighteen and again in Acts chapter five verse twenty six. Now, now the word captain is the Greek word for general. It's strategos. And of the temple in Jerusalem, Liddell and Scott say of the word in the Greek English lexicon that it denotes an officer who had the custody of the temple of Jeru- at Jerusalem that the high priests used this captain and his temple guards, who were called officers in the New Testament, as their own private army is evident in Luke chapter 22, verse 52, in John chapter 18, in Acts chapter 5, where it is seen that they even had their own prison. In, in Rome... In, in the Roman, in the organization of the Roman Empire, the subject provinces had the leaders appointed by Rome. In subject provinces, were taken like the tetrarchs in Judea, were taken from the local population and appointed by the Romans to be leaders, and they had the power over their own people in their own province to um, punish and to um, maintain a certain, that their own local laws and to punish violators. But they couldn't try capital offenses. They did not have a right to try capital offenses, which is why Christ had to be brought before Pilate, because only the Roman authority in the province had the right to try capital offenses. Now, the laws were different for a subject kingdom. If the if the the subject territory was um, what was granted the status of a kingdom. And, and that's how Judea was under Herod the Great. But under Herod Archelaus, his successor, that status changed and the kingdom was reduced to a province. So while, while Judea was a province, the local rulers could not try capital offenses, which is why Christ had to be tried in front of Pilate. The, the Judeans, I'm sorry, the Judeans had to get the, the um, approval of the Roman authority in order for Christ to be executed. They didn't have the legal power themselves. So, so we see that they had their own um, police structure, if I have to call it that, which is basically what it was. They had their own police structure, and that police structure was given authority over the local people in all but capital offenses. And the, I'm sorry, I have something caught in my throat. And the um, the the authorities who had that power at the local level were able to police the, the people of the nation. So, so that's how that worked. Paul was working as a Judean citizen in the employ of the Judean authorities, but that authority had nothing to do with Rome. It had nothing to do with the Roman army. They had their own police structure. And that's what we see being described in Acts chapter chapter five in in verses twenty four through twenty six and and where Paul explains on his own accord, he explains that he had been given authority from the high priests to 
round up the heretics that he rounded up in Damascus and elsewhere. So, so that's how that worked. And, and Douglas really has no clue about that because, well, well, Douglas or whoever wrote this, Brother Nazariah, he calls himself the clown that I think wrote this, that they really don't have any idea of how all this works because they haven't really done the reading. Or they understand and they're just choosing to lie. Well, well, that's another possibility, yes. Not, neither does Douglas have any evidence to support his claim that Paul persecuted thousands of people. He just pulled that number out of thin air, right? The New Testament accounts give no specific number, uh, unless he read the number in the Talmud, right? That Douglas is writing a novel. He doesn't need sources for his statements. That, that this is the methods of the Paul bashers. This is their level of intellectual honesty is incredibly low. It's really non-existent. Neither does Douglas document his claim that many of them were mere children, which the New Testament account contradicts. D Douglas is saying, telling us that, that, that Paul persecuted thousands of Christians and many of them were mere children. Well, well that doesn't, the, the New Testament account, account contradicts that in, in stating that the people that were, um, the, the Christians that were punished while Paul of Tarsus, and, and there were other people acting on behalf of the Judean authorities, Paul was only one person. The Christians who were punished during this period were actually given trials by the Judean people. And Paul, the language that Paul uses in Acts, states explicitly when the, that when it was decided whether these people were executed, votes were taken. And that's the language that Paul uses, that he had extended his hand for the purpose of voting whether these people would be executed or not. And that all had to be done in accordance with the, the Roman law. Just like Christ was executed, there had to be a governor who was at least rubber stamping the executions, right? Absolutely. So what next? Is he going to claim that Paul was using some ancient form of poison gas to gas these people inside a chamber? Well, well right, exactly. What we, we've seen with Graeber that, that um, false accusation after false accusation and, and all of the charges which Graeber had against Paul of Tarsus were based on um, false premises and, and false assumptions being purported about history. And, and about the way that life functioned in first century Judea. And, and we see the same thing with Douglas. He's just, that they don't like Paul of Tarsus. They want to discredit Paul of Tarsus so that they could ultimately discredit the entire Bible and Christianity itself. That's their real motivation. And, and, and they'll make up any story possible that they could use to discredit Paul of Tarsus. That's the method and operation of the Paul bashers. Well, when you're writing a novel, like you said, you, you don't need a, a bibliography. You don't have to cite your sources. Absolutely. And and these are the methods of a novelist. Reference 15, please. Clay Douglas states, Paul, Saul, claimed that he had a vision in which the crucified Jesus came to him along with 500 other witnesses. As a result of this strange experience, Saul convinced others that he was now a disciple of the master teacher, Esu. 
That, the use of that name is absolutely ridiculous, right? But we've addressed it before, and I'm not going to go oh, back to it. A master teacher? Well, we'll call them Esu. Esu. It's incredible. I'm absolutely convinced that Clay Douglas that Clay Douglas is ignorant of many things, and probably because he simply can't read. It's it. I don't know. It's Paul bashers are are they blind as bats? Here, Douglas says that Paul claimed five hundred witnesses had seen Paul's vision on the road to Damascus. Did Paul claim that five hundred witnesses had seen his vision? That's what he says here, right? Paul Saul claimed that he had a vision in which the crucified Jesus came to him along with five hundred other witnesses. That's what he says. So wait, the wording though is is Paul saying that I saw Jesus and five hundred other people, or five hundred other people and myself saw Jesus. Well, well, right. The wording's ambiguous, but still, it it leads us to believe that when Paul had seen his vision on the road to Damascus, that there were 500 other people there. 500 other witnesses were there. Now, now the only place in all of Paul's writings and in all of the New Testament that mentions 500 witnesses is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6. It's the only place. And I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 6, to see exactly what Paul was talking about. And he's addressing the Corinthians in an epistle, and he says, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, which means Peter, the apostle, then of the twelve, meaning all of the apostles. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present day, but some are fallen asleep, meaning that they died. So, so Paul is telling us that Christ appeared to 500 people, but Paul is not telling us that there were 500 people with Christ or with him on the road to Damascus. There's nothing about Damascus in that statement. There's nothing about Paul's vision in that statement. He only relates here to the Corinthians what he himself had been told, which is what he's honestly stating, where he says that which I also received, about the events surrounding Christ's resurrection and his appearance to his disciples. And we have partial accounts of that in Matthew 28, Luke 24, John chapter 20. And and either Clayton Douglas cannot read, or the writer of this paper cannot read, or they're lying, one or the other. It's in, it, it's just, they make up their own Bible. They make up their own Bible to discredit Paul of Tarsus. That's what's going on here. Isn't that what the Talmud is? Um, basically, the, the 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 Talmud is the reinvention of the Bible so that the Jews can participate in every sort of perversion. And imagine that they have approval. And really, it's only their own approval that they're self-justified, right? Absolutely. Reference 16. Clay Douglas states, Paul's own words bring us a sense of his strange experience. First, Paul Saul said there were people 
with him who heard the voice and saw the bright light. Now, as he journeyed, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed about him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Acts 9, 3 through 19, actually 3 through 7. But then, later, Paul's experience changes, according to his own words. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Acts 22. This time... The witnesses hear no voice, but they do see the light. But hold on, Paul's experience changes yet again. When Paul addresses King Agrippa, the witnesses hear nothing, they see nothing, and the vision becomes Paul's alone. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining round me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Acts 26:13 through 14, Paul's vision continues to mutate subtly. By the end of the metamorphosis, Paul has become Al Pacino, the megastar in his newly developing screenplay. Well, th- these paragraphs continue to mutate overtly and blatantly from paragraph to paragraph. Right. And it, it seems that Clay Douglas has now become the, the master author in his new novel. He, he's Raymond Burr. He, he's, yeah, you know, the old 60s television lawyer program? By the time of Galatians, Paul's authority has grown beyond measure. He is now an apostle, and he proclaims his standing as Nazarite, one chosen before his birth as a prophet of God. No one may challenge his position. No one may challenge his authority. Paul has taken it beyond the realm of man into an arena which no one dare question. And I guess in the interceding period of time, the Roman army just decided that they, they would discharge him, and he can now roam around and, and become an apostle and a disciple. So he, he enlisted in the Roman army, which at the time it was a 20-year enlistment. I guess he served for three or four years, persecuted thousands of Christian babes. And then they said, okay, Paul, you know, we're going to give you an early release. You'll, you'll be the first one in the history of the Roman army. Here's your release papers. You can now roam around the country and do whatever you want. I guess. That doesn't, that, that doesn't add up. I mean, when you join the Roman army, you're in for 20 years or you're in until you die or you, you get maimed or, or something happens. And, and in your spare time, you're building roads and bridges, right? Right. The, the um, I, I don't that this that this well, well, this argument here is taking advantage of a bad translation in the King James version in order to discredit Paul. But then Douglas adds a lot of theatrics into it, like the Al Pacino reference, the the megastar in a new newly developing screenplay, that the um. Paul's proclaim proclamation that that he his standing as a Nazarite, one chosen before his birth as a prophet of God. Paul never made such a claim. There's no such claim coming from the lips of Paul, and that's also another um, bit of confusion that Douglas is taking advantage of because the the sect of the Nazarenes of the New Testament. They were called that for a specific reason, and that was the original reference that the Judeans used of Christians, and it had nothing to do with the Nazarites of the Old Testament that that are seen in the book of Judges. I think it's chapter 6. The Nazarenes in the New Testament have nothing to do whatsoever with the Nazarite prophets 
of the Old Testament. Now, now a critic can read two different versions of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and we see two different versions of it, one in Matthew chapters 5 and 7, 5 through 7, and the other one in Luke chapter 6. And a critic can claim fraud because the records aren't identical. Yet rather we have two different note takers, each recording individually the parts which impressed him the most, and therefore we have two different accounts of the same sermon. It's natural, right? Not having the technology that we have today, even in manual writing, it was a pre tedious process to do even manual writing to the ancients. Unlike today, precise accounts of speeches unwritten beforehand are very rare. There is historical evidence that various forms of shorthand were used in the Roman Senate in the first century, but we could hardly expect that of the pastoral folk of Galilee. Paul gives three accounts of the road to Damascus event, which, just, which what was the event what, which, um, in which he was converted, right? The last account, the last version of the account, what was given many years after the first version, can we expect them to be the same word for word? Of course we can't. If you recount um, the events of any particular day in your life and you recount them today and then you recount them again in 10 years and you recount them again 10 or 15 years after that, they're, of course they're not going to be word for word. They're not going to match word for word because over the years, different aspects of an event are more lasting in your memory while other details fade into oblivion. And each time Paul relates the event in his life, as we see it three times in the book of Acts, it is someone else, either Luke or whoever Luke obtained the record from, because half of the book of Acts is not... Luke was not the eyewitness to the first 15 chapters of the book of Acts. Luke was only an eyewitness from chapter 16, right? So, so the first time the event happened and it was described, Paul, Luke received that record from, probably from Paul, but from other people, vicariously, and he recorded it. So is the recorder really reporting everything which was said on all three occasions, or is it more likely that, as was customary at the time, only a synopsis was given in each of the three records, and each of the three records vary slightly. Now, of course, here, each record is only a synopsis. And we should not force a higher standard upon Paul of Tarsus than we would upon any other ancient writer. And the same goes for Luke. Now, Luke, who was typically, he was a typically exacting historian. There are examples of that in his writing, for instance, in Luke chapter 3. Luke saw no conflict in the three accounts, and he had plenty of opportunity to rectify them if he did see a conflict since he wrote them. Now, complaining, I'm sorry, comparing the, the, the King James Version and, and other translations of Acts chapter 9, verse 7, and Acts chapter 22, verse 9, and, and that's the real issue here. I can see where there would be cause for concern regarding the validity of the account. For there does seem to be an irreconcilable discrepancy in those passages. 
in English. It is commonly professed by most people in various factions of what we term Christian identity that there are many errant translations found in the King James Version of the Bible and in other versions. While Douglas cites the RSV here, the Revised Standard Version, referring to Acts chapter 9, verse 7, and Acts 22, 9, that version really doesn't do any better than the King James Version in many respects. For Acts 22, verse 9, is poorly translated in both of those Bible versions. I checked the... Um, other translations of Acts 22.9, such as the New Living Translation, and they're even worse. It can be demonstrated time and again that theologians have written what they think the Greek says, and just as often what they think that the Greek should say, and claim to be offering fair translations. Because all of our Bible versions are so polluted to one extent or the other, one shouldn't dare to judge any biblical passage critically unless, as Paul attests, one can prove all things, making trial of them for oneself. I'm going to um, take a second to pull the King James Version of Acts 22.9 up, and even of Acts chapter 9, verse 7. And you'll have to bear with me a second. Acts chapter 9, verse 7. Paul says, And the men traveling with him, I'm sorry, Luke writes, And the men traveling with him stood dumb. Indeed, hearing the voice, the voice which came from heaven, but seeing nobody. That's Acts chapter 9, verse 7. Now let's read Acts chapter 22, verse 9 from the King James Version. And they that were with me, these are Luke's record of Paul's, Paul speaking, and they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. So as the King James is translated and other versions, we do have a discrepancy. There's no doubt. Acts 9-7, I'm going to read it one more time from the King James. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice. So they heard a voice. That's what the text says. But seeing no one. Acts 22-9 And they that were with me saw indeed the light, and were, they were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. Now, my challenge would be to demonstrate that that's not what the Greek says, and it's not. The first half of Acts chapter 22, verse 9, which I have translated in the Christogenia New Testament, and they who were with me surely beheld the light, is not an issue here. The second half is the issue, which I have translated in the Christian New Testament. But for the voice, they did not understand that being spoken to me. In other words, they did hear the voice, but they didn't understand what was being spoken. Once you translate this passage in that manner, there is no discrepancy between Acts 22 verse 9 and Acts 
9.7. In fact, they're both testifying to the exact same thing. Now, an examination of the Greek language of word for word and the Greek language that the words say tain de phonain uk e kusan tu la luntes moi or moir in French, it's moi, M-O-I. These words, these Greek words that make this phrase are consistent among all the ancient manuscripts. There's no question. And going through these words, Greek word for Greek word, and examining the grammar, we can conclude that this phrase is properly translated in the Christogenia New Testament. But for the voice, they did not understand that being spoken to me. Cain phonane are the words, the voice, they're in the accusative case, which marks it as the direct object of the verb here. And I have supplied the word for, just as with the genitive case, we have to supply in English the word of or from. In the dative case, we have to supply the preposition to or with in order for it to make sense in English. Here we can supply the preposition for, F-O-R. And that word phone is voice. It, it could mean a voice or it could mean a sound. The word ekusan is the third person plural form of the word to hear. And, and it's negated here. They did not hear. The words tolaluntas, that, that's a participle with, with a... Um, what well, was a definite article, which means it's a substantive. It's a group of words which form a noun. They're being used as a noun. The form of both the participle and the article are masculine or neuter. Okay? There's no personal pronoun present in this verse, him in the King James Bible, or the one who in the Revised Standard Version, those words don't really appear in the Greek. The King James Version added the word him to the text, but they did not mark it in italics. So, so they, they, they devised that word. The Christogenia New Testament translation doesn't add any words to the text here in order to make it understandable. Now, the writer or speaker may easily have included a pronoun if he wanted to explicitly state as much. It could mean he who is speaking, but it could also refer to that which is being spoken. If it referred to the person who was speaking, a pronoun would have properly appeared in the passage, and there is no pronoun. The King James translation and the Revised Standard Version, they supply phrases which amount to pronouns, him in the King James or the one who in the Revised Standard versions, Version. Those pronouns do not appear in the Greek. Therefore, I would, uh, I would translate 
the substantive to refer to that which was being spoken because there is no pronoun. Now, the translator's choice might be to translate this passage one way or the other. However, since the passage can really be translated either way if you want to infer the pronoun and add it where it doesn't really belong, well, well, should you translate the passage in a way that agrees with Acts 9-7, or should you translate it and add a pronoun and it doesn't agree with Acts 9-7? Which one would be the honest way to translate the passage? That's what this boils down to. Well, we're dealing with people who aren't honest. Well, well right. And, and the King James, uh, I'm sure, I don't know if they just overlooked it. I don't know if they really meant to translate the passage in a way that would conflict with Acts 9-7. However, it's very clear to me, and it's more proper because of the, the non-existence of the personal pronoun, it's more proper to translate it in, in a literal way that does not conflict with Acts 9-7. And therefore, the way that the Christogenian New Testament translates Acts 22.9 is, first, the grammar is entirely proper, and second, there is no added pronoun where a pronoun does not exist, as we see in the King James Version, and third, there's no conflict with Acts 9.7. So the Christogenian New Testament would read Acts 22.9 to say... And they who were with me surely beheld the light. But for the voice, they did not understand that being spoken to me. And translating it in that manner, which is entirely proper, it does not conflict with Acts 9-7, which states in the King James, and the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. In other words, they heard the voice, and that's what Acts 22.9 is saying. For the voice, they heard it, but they didn't understand what was being spoken. So it adds, the, the, the way the account is stated here adds a fact, which we don't really see in Acts 9.7 by itself, but, meaning that they heard a voice, but they didn't understand it, but nevertheless, they heard the voice. So, so we see that properly translated, there's no conflict in Paul's two statements. Reading the Greek, there's no conflict in Paul's two statements, unless you want to do like the King James did and add the pronoun him where there is no pronoun, because the word him is not found in the text. So, so there's no conflict here. When we see a conflict in the Scripture, Whenever we see, now, now the Paul bashers, Clayton Douglas is taking advantage of this conflict because there is a conflict the way the King James Version translated it. And, and everybody who wants to be an honest student of Scripture must understand that where there is apparent, an apparent conflict, the translation has to be checked. And here, the translation can be established that, that this passage can be translated and, and should be translated in a manner in which there is no conflict at all. Well, it seems Clay Douglas would prefer instead of reconciling the conflict or investigating the conflict, he he just picks whichever side of the conflict supports his pseudo-historical novel. 
Well, well, right, and Douglas wants to find conflicts, but there is no conflict. And, and Douglas, in his charge here against Paul, says that when Paul addresses King Agrippa, the witnesses hear nothing, they see nothing, and the vision becomes Paul's alone. Now, there's no such thing. That, that's a reference to Acts chapter 26 when Paul gives this witness a third time. You see, in Acts chapter 9, that's the first time this is described. And the words aren't Paul's. That, that they are, the words belong to another witness, a third party who gave them the Luke. That's the perspective that Acts chapter 9 is written in, the first description of this event on the road to Damascus. In Acts chapter 22, we have the second version, of, you know, retelling of the account in Scripture. And in Acts chapter 26, we have the third. And in Acts chapter 26, again, the words are Paul's, and he's addressing King Agrippa. But we don't see anything like Douglas is describing in Acts chapter 26. Douglas is lying. The simple truth is that Paul did not relate, or, or maybe he did, but Luke did not record what those with him saw or heard, because the repeated here was not important. Well, it wouldn't be the first time Douglas lied. Well, well, right. He lies again and again. Like a government prosecutor, Douglas just manufactures charges, hoping to further impress or awe the jury into favoring his indictment. Douglas also states that Paul proclaims his standing as a Nazarite, one chosen before his birth as a prophet of God. Did Paul do such a thing? The words Nazarite or Nazarene don't appear anywhere in the King James Version, in Paul's letters, or in the book of Acts, except in one place, in Acts chapter 24, verse 5. They're not anywhere in Paul's letters. They're not anywhere else in the book of Acts. Uh, I mean, we know the words from, from, um, from the Gospels, right? The words only appear in Acts 24.5. And the word in Greek is the same word that pertains to Christ, which appears at Acts 2.22, Acts 3.6, Acts 4.10, Acts 6.14, Acts 22.8, and Acts 26.9, where it's translated of Nazareth in those places in the King James Version. So we have the same word here in Acts 24.5 that are translated elsewhere of Nazareth. It's the same word that's translated elsewhere of Nazareth in the book of Acts at those places in the King James. The Strong's number for this word is 3480. But under Nazareth, Strong misidentified many of the entries there with number 3478. Except for Acts 24.5, the word appears in Acts only in reference to Christ, where it says, of Nazareth in the King James. And nowhere do these words appear in any of Paul's epistles, and not in the epistle to the Galatians, which Douglas also suggests. It's a lie. The, word, the phrase in Acts 24.5 is sect of the Nazarene. And I'm going to examine the verse. In Acts 24, it says, Acts 24, verse 5, 
And this has nothing to do with the um, the address of Paul to Herod Agrippa, as Douglas suggests, because that's in Acts chapter 26, right? In Acts 24, verse 5, we have the words of, of the adversaries of Paul, which say, For we have found this man a pestilent fellow, and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So we find that in this one place that the word is used to Paul, but it is used by the Judeans who were accusing him before the procurator Felix. Now Douglas joins the Jews and accuses Paul again. They say that he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Yet it can be further determined that there was indeed a sect by this name and that they were persecuted by the Judeans. Writing about Herod Agrippa I, who ruled Judea until the Romans, under the Romans until he died in 44 AD, in the days of Claudius Caesar. Now, Claudius Caesar was the emperor from 41 to 54 AD, right? In the days of Claudius Caesar, and so this was sometime before Paul was brought to Felix, the procurator in Judea. Felix was the procurator from 52 to 56 AD. Josephus states in Antiquities, Book 19, Chapter 6, Section 1. He also came to Jerusalem and offered all the sacrifices that belonged to him and omitted nothing which the law required, on which account he ordained that many of the Nazarites should have their heads shorn. Okay, that's a quote from Josephus, Antiquities, Book 19, Chapter 6. And a footnote in the King James Study Bible, Thomas Nelson Incorporated at Acts 24.5 correctly states that, that this is what the Thomas Nelson Study Bible says about this passage and this use of the term sect of the Nazarenes in Acts 24.5. The Jews would not call the believers Christians, the people of the Christ or Messiah. They used other terms like the sect of the Nazarenes. The nickname was derived from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. And that's exactly true. The Nazarites, or Nazarenes of New Testament times, were what the Judeans called the followers of Christ, as we even see in Josephus' Antiquities, Book 19, Chapter 6, speaking of Herod, that he ordained that many of the Nazarites should have their heads shorn. These aren't to be confused with the ancient Nazarite priesthood of Judges chapter 6. I think it's Judges chapter 6. I could be wrong. And we see that Samson, the famous Samson from, from, um, from 1 Samuel, that he was one of those Nazarites. But this New Testament period, these people had nothing to do with that. The Nazarites or Nazarenes of the New Testament were followers of Christ, as they were identified by the non-believing people of Judea. They were called Nazarenes or Nazarites. While prophetically Christ's being raised in Nazareth, 
he may be called that he may be called a Nazarite has a symbolic connection to the Nazarites of the Old Testament, as we see in Matthew chapter two, verse twenty-three. In reality, being a follower of Christ or a Nazarite in New Testament times is not the same as being an Old Testament Nazarite. And I'm sorry, that's the book of Numbers, chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. And that's what Douglas is inferring, but it's not true. The Judeans would not call Christ Christ. Why wouldn't they call Christ Christ? Because calling him Christ admits that he's the Messiah. Because Christ is a translation in the Greek of the Hebrew word Meshiach, which is Messiah. So if I call you king, I'm acknowledging that you're my king, am I not? Absolutely. If I call Jesus Christ, I'm acknowledging that he's the Messiah. Well, if I'm a Jew and I'm not going to make that acknowledgement, I'm going to deny it. So I need a different name for him and his followers. So they called him the Nazarene because he was from Nazareth. They called him Jesus the Nazarene, or Yahshua the Nazarene. So they, told, they didn't call Paul a leader of the sect of the Christians, because that would have admitted that the Christians were the followers of the Messiah. And the Jews weren't going to make that admission. So they called him the leader of the sect of the Nazarenes, so that they didn't have to admit that they were Christians and Christ was the Messiah. It's that simple. It's so simple, it's stupid, that people don't recognize why the term was used. Because the Jews couldn't use the term Christ. They avoided it in reference to Christians and in reference to Yahshua Christ. They avoided it because using the term is an acknowledgement of the fact. And, and that's something we, that we don't understand today. That, that's something that's lost on us in pop culture. When you use a term uh, or, or a title or, or, or anything in reference to someone, it's an acknowledgement of fact. So if you call Jesus the Christ, whether you believe him or not, you're acknowledging the fact that he's the Messiah. Well, if there's a pretender that a throne and you address him as your majesty, you're acknowledging that the pretender is someone you consider your king. Well, well right. And, and, and in the first century, they realized that. So they avoided the term Christ in reference to Jesus, and they avoided the term Christians in reference to his followers. So they called them the sect of the Nazarenes, and they called him the Nazarene. Like when referring to Obama, I, I seldom call him President Obama because I don't regard him as a legitimate, valid president. Well, well right. That, now, the, the, the record in Acts chapter 24 states that the Judeans called Paul the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And this is how dishonest the Paul bashers are. Douglas took that and transformed it into Paul's proclamation that he was a prophet ordained by God. What the hell? That is, one has nothing to do with the other. The words were recorded about Paul, but they were recorded as not having come from Paul. It, the, the entire thing is totally dishonest. The, the number of lies in this one accusation, that there's three or four lies. So because his enemies are calling him the leader of the group of the Nazarenes, and they refer to him as a Nazarite, now Douglas is saying, oh, Paul took that title for himself. Well, right, and proclaimed himself a prophet of God. 
It's crazy. It, it's that this is how dishonest that these Paul bashers are. All Paul bashers are liars. I'm going to go so far as to to assert that all Paul bashers are liars. Because they follow, they all follow the same methods. Every Paul basher I've seen has followed the same dishonest methods in assessing the scripture. It's incredible. Would you like to read reference 17? Reference 17. Clay Douglas states, Saul promptly changed his name to Paul to disguise himself as a desert. I guess he's addressing how he got out of the Roman army. Oh. I, was asked, I was asking if the Romans just discharged him or gave him a leave of absence to he's, roam around their country. He's got all his faces covered <laughs> Saul promptly changed his name to Paul to disguise himself as a deserter from the Roman army and to fool other disciples of Esu who had been his enemies. Okay, so they're his enemies, but they don't recognize him anymore because he's changed his name. Right. So, right, back then, people that, and in order to be someone's enemy back then, you didn't argue on the Internet. You knew him face-to-face, and you would argue back and forth in a meeting place. Well, well right, and, and Douglas has already described it. Well, well, first he said that Paul didn't know Jesus and the apostles at all, and, and then he said that Paul had infiltrated the group so that he could steal the secret scrolls. <laughs> That, and and then he must have known them all if he infiltrated the group. So but then he comes back with a different name and no one recognizes him. Yeah, right. He he put on a Groucho Marx glass. <laughs> and I think they sold them at Irving's Dime Store on the corner of Fifth and Main in Jerusalem. In the so so what? He he just um he he grew his hair pretty long. He put on some beads. He he dressed up like a hippie and. He put on a fake mustache and came back, and he. They said, "Hey, have we met you before? Are you named? Um, are you Saul?" And he said, "No, that that's my cousin. I'm Paul." Right. It's incredible. It, it's novel. The, the Paul, message of the Paul bashers. I, I mean, they promote this crap as scholarship, and 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 it's sad because people in Christian identity, and I have a whole long list of them. They believe it. They believe this garbage. They buy this trash. Because it feeds one agenda or another, which they have, and and they take it and run with it. Uh, I, I don't know. I can't quantify it. It's it's so it, it's incredible. Anybody who read his Bible believes that this clown who's written this trash, Graver too. Well, to, to their credit, they anticipated that objection when I asked, "How does um how do we explain Paul's absence from the Roman army?" And I, I was wondering what they were going to say if they just said the governor said, "Okay, it's time that you, you're a secret agent undercover now. You're no longer Saul. You're Paul. Go infiltrate them." Well, no, he's just an outright deserter. And, and incidentally, people that deserted the Roman army typically didn't live long. It, it wasn't a they didn't have a high rate of success. Well, I'm not mistaken that the punishment for desertion was um, crucifixion, wasn't it? Well, well, yeah, desertion. Deserters were treated very harshly by the Romans. And I would assume, too, since Paul was a Roman citizen, if he had been a Roman soldier who deserted, when they captured him and he said, I appeal unto Caesar, and they said, then unto Caesar shalt thou go, if he had been a deserter from the Roman army, he would have had a mark of a legionnaire on him, they would have recognized him as a deserter, and there wouldn't have been any need to send him to Caesar for a trial over religious issues. They would have just executed him as a deserter. Well, well, I'm certain. 
right? Because, I mean, they wouldn't have allowed him to go to Caesar to argue one capital case when the punishment for desertion is death. And there's really no argument. If you're not present at your unit and you don't have proper leave, you're a deserter. I don't know if um, Douglas explained the circumstances of Paul's execution. I, I don't think he got that far. All right. Well, I, I can't even begin to fathom what Douglas would claim. But, okay, apparently Paul is a deserter from a, the Roman army. Though he had access to Esu's original scrolls, stolen from Judas Iscariot, Paul twisted, purposefully twisted, these teachings of truth. Paul began traveling from place to place, proclaiming the teachings of Esu. Even Esu's closest followers were fooled into believing that the new missionary, what the new missionary taught. Through financial assistance of his Pharisee friends in Jerusalem, Paul set out to his first missionary journey, teaching his twisted version of Esu's new teachings of truth. During his life, he made three major missionary journeys through the countries bordering the east and north shores of the Mediterranean Sea, even as far east as Italy. Well, I guess he must have circumnavigated the globe and approached Italy from the other direction. Well, right. It, it's, he, he did write even as far east as Italy in his original article, yes. He, he was going the wrong way. <laughs> so he really did travel then. Everywhere he traveled, Paul established groups of believers he called churches. Those more commonly known churches were Jerusalem, Ephesus, Antioch, Corinth, Colossae, Thessalonica, Philippi, Laodicea, Galatia, Athens, and Rome. And I'm wondering, if he's a deserter from the Roman army living on the road, how do his Pharisee friends in Jerusalem know where to send the money? He must have had a P.O. box. <laughs> or well, he, he must have told the legionnaires, he said, Centurion, I'm deserting tomorrow. If any mail comes for me, please forward it to this address. Well, well right, and, and that's part of my argument you know, you know, against this, this ridiculous set of charges or, or these ridiculous assertions, right? Well, we've already established that Paul did not change his name. He only had two names, and that Paul was never in the Roman army. Now, now furthermore, I must ask, and, and this is glaring, what sort of man would desert an army after committing a series of infamous deeds? Change his name to hide his desertion, as Douglas self-forthrightly alleges, yet go around admitting that he was the perpetrator of the very deeds he is hiding from. So that, that's like John Dillinger going into hiding and then telling everyone he's John Dillinger. Well, right. Exactly. Yeah, you know, Paul's admissions of, of the acts that, that he had persecuted Christians in Judea, right? Paul's admissions are recorded in Acts chapter 22. They're recorded in Acts chapter 26. He admits it in his own hand in Galatians chapter 1, in 1 Timothy chapter 1. His actions were admitted indirectly in Acts chapter 9. They were described in Acts chapter 8. And it's explained that the Christians knew who he was and of his conversion in Acts chapter 9. Now, those same Christians treated him respectfully in Acts chapter 15, okay? And they surely knew who he was because it was discussed by them in Acts chapter 15 that he had formerly persecuted Christians and now had joined with the Christians. And, and they knew who he was unless 
Clayton Douglas expects us to think of the apostles as idiots, as he obviously thinks his own readers are. How can a man be fleeing from what he is at the same time admitting? And, and while he spoke many languages and had the capacity to travel, he stayed in Judea. He stayed in Judea. Acts chapter 15, that event took place 14 years after the conversion of Paul on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. 14 years after. So he's still in Jerusalem after 14 years admitting that he had done these things while he's hiding from them. That doesn't make any sense at all. And no one decided to turn him in as a deserter and collect a reward? You're not a bank robber in hiding going around telling everybody about the bank that you robbed. It makes no sense whatsoever. You're not going to pull off a mass school shooting and go into hiding. Well, Douglas said Paul killed thousands of people, many of them innocent children, right? Well, you're not going to do something so infamous as that and go into hiding and tell everybody that you're the guy that did it. That not if you want to stay in hiding for very long. Well, well, right. And Paul stayed in hiding. I mean, Acts chapter 15, that event was 14 years after Paul had, had, had um, been converted on a road to Damascus. And, and then we have the events in Acts chapter 22 were about 15 years after the events in Acts chapter 15. So, so Paul was running around the Mediterranean for a long time telling people that he was the guy that persecuted Christians back there in, 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 um, in, in the, the year following the, the crucifixion of Christ and, and the event of Pentecost. So, so he went around for 30 years telling them, yeah, I'm that guy. And they would have known that he was a deserter from the Roman army if, he, if indeed he was. So, so it's, Douglas writes a novel, and it's all lies. It's a novel. I mean, they, they could make this into a screenplay and sell it to some Jew director in Hollywood. Well, well yeah, but it wouldn't even be a B-movie. It's, it's so, so, there are so many conflicts in, in the screenplay that, that even the morons that watch Jewish movies wouldn't like it. What would see through it? Well, I'm sure a Jew somewhere would pay for such a screenplay because this tears into Christianity. Well, well, of course. But it's so transparent, it's so blatant, it's so obvious. Well, well Douglas, you know, he's trying to tell us that this guy was admitting openly what he was fleeing from and, and really not leaving town. So, so that, that's just incredible. Well, why would the people, the, the Pharisees, you know, in Acts chapter 16, uh, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 14, what we have a record of the Pharisees in Antioch disputing with Paul and other people who came from Jerusalem disputing with Paul over religious matters, right? Why didn't they just give Paul up as the, a deserter from the Roman army rather than send him to plead his case to the Christian elders in Jerusalem. And Bill, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't there an instance where 40 Edomites swore an oath that they would take neither food nor water and they wouldn't rest until Paul was dead? Well, well right, and I was getting to that next. Why, when Paul was arrested by the Roman captain in Acts chapter 21, 
if all of these people in Jerusalem, these Judeans knew that Paul was the Roman, the deserter for the Roman army, why didn't they just tell that captain, hey, this guy was a Roman soldier, he deserted your army 30 years ago, whatever, 25 years ago? Why would 40 men need to take an oath to kill him if they could simply go to a Roman authority and say so-and-so is a deserter, and then the Romans would take it from there. Well, well, right. It's garbage. Anyone who, if Douglas believes that anyone who has actually studied the Bible and history could accept this garbage, then Clay Douglas is the idiot, right? Uh, I mean, this is all garbage. And none of it, what, when compared to the actual biblical account and the actual historical circumstances, none of these lies can hold up. None of them. That they're, the Paul bashers are, are, are well, well, they're garbage. But there's no doubt in my mind that Paul bashers are, are unstudied and, and emotionally triggered people that, that simply hate Paul for one reason or another because they have one agenda for an, or another, and, and, and they'll believe anything that they could use against him. And, and this article is replete with examples of that. Well, I don't even know if we can call this an article. This is more like some installment in a comic book series. Well, well, right. It is a comic book. It, it, it's horrible. It is hor- it, it's Academically, it's horrible, but I just know too many people who have fallen for this trash. It, it's right. incredible. It's, it's incredibly sad, and it's a sad reflection on identity Christians that Paul Bashers could be considered identity Christians. And I might read it. I might read it as part of this, of this series. I, I did a forum post in, in Christ, uh, on the Christogenia forum some years ago, and it's still there, that asserts that Paul bashers are not Christians. If you're a Paul basher, I'm sorry, you might think you're a Christian, but you can't be a Christian. Yeah, you know, when I write things... And, and and my papers are full of them, right? Nearly every one of my claims concerning ancient history are accompanied by a reference to some ancient writer like Strabo or Diodorus Siculus. And, and and those references are almost always accompanied by numbers referring to books, chapters, and paragraphs. And, and now, now with some writers, I don't name a work because only one work from some writers has survived, like Herodotus. Whenever you're referring to Herodotus, you're referring to the histories, because that's the only writing he has which survived. Whenever I'm referring to Strabo, I'm referring basically to Strabo's geography. Strabo had a history, but it didn't survive, and, and it's lost. Where I cite a writer that has more than one surviving book, you write Josephus's Antiquities, or Josephus's wars of the Judeans, and you include a book and a chapter number and a verse number, and that's self-evident to, to most um, people who read histories because it's normal scholarly practice. And especially, you know, you could make a, a, a lot of statements without citations, yet you could make statements that are popularly accepted, like the North won the Civil War, the United States Civil War, the North won. You don't have to to give a citation for a statement like that because everybody understands it to be true. It's not contested, right? right? Or if, if I say the Titanic sank on its maiden voyage, I don't need to cite a source. Well, well right. 
But when you say things that people don't generally know, or if you're revealing, if you feel you're making some revelation that you don't expect people to know, you better have some citations. You better have the names of some old books that people can go to the library and look up and find so that they could read it for themselves. That's normal scholarly practice. Uh, I would stake my reputation upon that, that if you take any of my papers and go to a library and find some translation of Strabo, Josephus, Herodotus, Euripides, or whoever else I might be quoting, and find the section which I cite that I have quoted it or paraphrased it accurately. And, and this, this Graeber did the same thing, and now Douglas is doing it. They're making a whole bunch of statements and accusations, and they're making many statements which are new to many readers, and they expect what they're saying to be new to their readers. Or, and, and that's the tenor of their articles, and, and yet they don't make one citation. Not one citation for any of this garbage that Douglas has invented here. There's not one citation. Paul bashers are clowns. And we saw it in Graeber and we see it in Douglas. Well, at least they might invent citations. I mean, they invent characters. They invent people who never existed, don't they? So why don't they just go one step further and invent citations? Well, well right. It's sad. If somebody's giving you... Um, if somebody's giving you what they present as facts, and, and those facts aren't generally known, you, you had better demand citation, citations. And, 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 and if that person isn't supplying them, then he's lying. It's real simple. He's lying. If you start telling me things from from the fourth century BC in, in, in that that happened in in Macedonia or, or in Anatolia or any place in the ancient world, and you think you're you're revealing things to me that I may not have heard before, and um, that that go against the grain of popularly accepted um, perception, that then you better have citations. Where'd you get that from, Brian? What, was there some new book discovered? Was there some new inscription dug out of the ground that none of the other writers were aware of, and you're, you're making a revelation concerning that discovery to me? So if I tell you Alexander of Macedon, Alexander the Great, was a homosexual, and my source is, oh, I saw it in a movie you know, that just came out last week. Well, well right. That's ridiculous. You better have an ancient, authoritative, ancient source that... that you can cite to um, show that your allegation has historical support. Otherwise, it's a lie. It's a lie. And it, actually, the accusations that Alexander of Macedon was a homosexual, that they are extant and they are lies because there are no ancient, accurate historical sources for them. In fact, he was always accompanied by a couple of historians but none of those none of those writings survived it, it's um there, there are all kinds of examples on the internet uh, of shabby scholarship like that of Clayton Douglas which because um because posts and references are made to this writing in the right places in the right forums that that they 
that they pick up the appearance of authority and they really don't have any, right? And these Paul bashing articles are in that category. They're horrible. People listen to them. Clay Douglas, Clayton Douglas was a correspondent for the old Spotlight newspaper, which was popular in right-wing Christian circles. It was popular among people who had um, generally sought against the grain in the first place, who, who suspected the system, people that were um, yet, you know, in tune with all the various conspiracy theories, some of them which are legitimate and some of them which are not. So well, they're people who are open to alternative explanations. Yes, right. The people who are readers and, and of alternative media and who like to investigate things for themselves. Clayton Douglas was very popular in those circles simply because he was a correspondent. He wrote some articles for the old Spotlight newspaper. So, so when he started his Free American magazine, because he was a correspondent for the old Spotlight newspaper, he picked up a lot of readers who were of that type. And, and, and a lot of those people are, um, to one degree or another, that they're Christian identity adherents or, or they're Christian identity believers or they're Klansmen or, or, or any of a variety of um, beliefs or persuasions which lie on the Christian right. And a lot of them were his fans and followers. And when he printed this garbage, well, well, it had some gravity simply because it came from this guy that was a correspondent for the Spotlight newspaper, and a lot of people liked the guy. So, so it 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 made some headway into um, certain elements of of the conservative Christian community. And and certain people take this stuff and run with it because it it, it feeds their agenda that whether their agenda be um, anti-universalist or whether they dislike Paul of Tarsus for some other reason, and, and it feeds that agenda and they run with it. And, and now this Paul bashing trash is disseminated throughout identity Christianity, but the perpetrator, and and it could be proven and we will prove it. That the ultimate perpetrators and creators of all of this Paul bashing material and, and most of this Paul bashing slander are themselves Jews and homosexuals. Or drug using deviants. Well well right, and in essence Clayton Douglas is nothing but a but a biker drug head, a a, a biker pothead. An Apache biker meth user or whatever he might be using. Yeah. It's um, it, it's sad, but that that's uh, I don't know. There's a lot of people in identity Christianity who have taken the Paul bashing, and they have to be addressed, and they have to be publicly scolded. So if he can claim that Actually, Paul did the work of the Jews, now if he can claim that Paul was in the Roman army and then deserted without any evidence, can I start claiming that Clay Douglas was in the Hell's Angels and then deserted the Hell's Angels? But, well, maybe to join the Crips or something. That's where he belongs. <laughs> okay, that's, that, that's about it for tonight. And, and we'll be back with 
a part 10 of Against the Paul Bashers. I'm not sure if we're going to be back to it next week. Maybe we'll find something else to harp on for a while. Uh, maybe we'll take a break from Paul bashing for a week or two. I'm, I'm not sure yet. But we'll, um, I have a few ideas, and next week's program will it is to be announced. I'll leave it at that. It'll probably be Against the Paul Bashers part 10, but we're going to to present many more of these presentations because all of this poll bashing material really has to be addressed and presented to the Christian identity community. It's necessary because this garbage has permeated um, many elements in Christian identity and it does not even belong in Christianity. This is fodder for Talmudists, for Antichrists. This garbage belongs in the yeshivas. It sure as hell doesn't belong in, in, among Christians. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Brian, for accompanying me and, and suffering with me through this. Praise Yahweh. I will be here next Friday with Severus Nifelson. We will be presenting his paper and discussing his paper, Transcending Materialism. Well, this stuff was pretty funny for a comic book. Tonight was one of the funnier nights. Well, well, I I hope so. I hope people find some entertainment value in it. There sure as hell isn't any scholarship in Paul bashing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just when we went over Graeber, he calls himself a doctor, and I can't imagine who who was on the, you know, the the, the panel for his PhD, you know, his um, PhD committee. I'm wondering if he turned that sort of work in, they would have to question whether or not he falsified his high school transcripts. I think PhD in his case might might, might stand for Paul hating dummy. <laughs> There's no scholarship with these people. It, it's sad. Yes, it is. I challenge any Paul Basher that thinks he's a scholar to come here and talk to me. Any Paul Basher whatsoever, except Russell Walker, because he's a moron. You're assuming they know how to operate a phone, though. Yeah. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. Good night.